Lord, we ask for your presence here this morning. I ask that your, uh, your will here would be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go all over the place today. This is what happens when <clears throat> the mind of Dan gets put on a topic, and then I start exploring it in my devotions. So I've got a list of scriptures, and you're going to have to actually go through your Bible today because I always intend to have a nice, concise PowerPoint like Pastor does, and it never really happens. <laughs> Too many words to read, and never get it to work right. So we're going to go old school on that. <clears throat> now, big picture, being dependent on God is a good thing, yeah? I'm pretty interactive, so yell back at me and stuff. So, it's a good thing to be dependent on him, and it's also a good thing to be able to partner with him and take part in his kingdom being built, right? So part of that would be taking responsibility for what you're given and what's in your life. And that's what I want to explore. Um, we're going to start in John 6. This is where you turn your Bible to John 6. Or your phone, or whatever. It's uh, the loaves and fishes. I love this story. And I'm just going to read it and ask you to follow along. And I want to read through some of these scriptures. I, it's just, I think some stuff's going to come out. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far sea side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with the disciples around him. Jesus saw the huge crowd coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed him. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Eh, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that for a huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterwards, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. They picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Now in that, my mind goes to the boy. Okay, So out of all those people, apparently the boy was the one who had his food. Now think about a boy in that time. If he's a child, he's not going to have the first pickings of the food probably. His dad's probably working to support the family. He's probably doing something laborious. I'm obviously making this up, but it would be normal for the times. And he would get what he got when it got to his time to eat. So I'm thinking, how could the boy have viewed, you know, what, 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 as a boy through his eyes, what was he thinking? You know, he could, one, one way I, you know, picture what's going through his mind or someone talking to him, well, you know, what, what are you doing, a boy with this food here? Like, what are you going to do with two fish and five loaves? You know, and he could have that kind of, well, it's not my responsibility. I'm kind of a victim here. I'm, a, I'm the boy. I'm little. Uh, I get the last portion. Uh, you know, I, I lucked out today, I guess, because I had this food, but 
what are they going to do with it? Or what about the boy who just owned the little bit that he could, and he's thinking, yeah, I got up early this morning. And because I was early, I grabbed five loaves of bread and ran out the door because no one else was awake. And I ran to my favorite fishing hole. And I couldn't th think if I wanted a night crawler or maybe a red worm. I went with the red worm with the number three hook, the red one. And I got two fish today, not just one. And I brought them in. And I couldn't control what was done with them, but I knew God was going to do something great with it. All I could do was give my part and let the cards fall. And I would like to think that that, that was more, that, that falls more in line with how Jesus said we're supposed to handle the responsibilities in our life. And, um, and, and, and in the last year, God's walked me a bunch through the life of David. And so that's what I'm going to end up looking at more of today. But throughout the different stories in the Bible, through people we encounter, you, you see that there is um, a response to taking responsibility. And it could be when you handle something well or when you screw up. But it seems that a lot of the hindrances are the same. One of them being deception, having an incorrect view of the Father, having shame. And another one being pride. And, and I will, would say that those same general categories, not all encompassing, but those are, seem to be attributes that you find, not only do they prevent those from fully repenting and walking and healing, but also those that, are, that give their five loaves and two, breath, two, er, two fish from, uh, from standing and saying, yes, I took care of what God gave me, and I didn't have control of it, but he blessed it, and it's a wonderful thing. And there's no reason to be ashamed of that. So we're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis 3. When you get to Genesis 3 in your Bible or phone, I want you to say, oh yeah. 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 And if we come to a passage today that you really like, you can give it like a Kool-Aid man. Oh yeah. <laughs> These things keep me on track. I don't know. Maybe it's distracting. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go Genesis 3, and we're going to look at the beginning, some of the, some of the first fruits of sin. So we're going to start in verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took from the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And God asked the woman, What have you done? 
The serpent deceived me, she said. That's why I ate it. From there, God goes on to explain to them the fruit of their choices. Interesting, though. God created them, you know, naked. But there was no shame. There was like an awesome, easy-to-understand symbol of the openness that was intended in our relationship for God, right? As soon as the first sin comes in, there's shame, and they try to cover it, and it brings division between the relationship between man and God. And from there on, there's many, many manifestations of a similar thing where they're deceived, they don't see God for who he is. Oh, God doesn't, God doesn't have the best for you, otherwise he wouldn't tell you not to eat that. There's deception, there's, they buy in, and then there's shame, which comes to bring division. And, and as you walk through the different stories, you see examples where folks either respond well in repentance and God restores, or in, in a more sad case, they are, remain deceived and walk away. I think this is just so cool in the life of David because of the, the length of descriptions we have, but also because of the Psalms that you kind of feel his heart. And so that's why I want to go here today, and then we'll talk a little bit about application. Um, so let's go to 1 Samuel 16. So, you know, the, the, the chapter starts and Samuel's going through the sons of Jesse. And in uh, verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord had sent a tormenting spirit and filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, and you will be well again. So the story continues, and it goes down to, to David. And Jesse his father responded by sending him to Saul, along with a young goat, a donkey, and a wineskin. And David went to Saul and began serving him. And Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. And if you know other things about David's life, you know that he becomes accustomed to buying into and taking responsibility for what God had poured out on him. He didn't have the choice to be, you know, he didn't win the contest to be most qualified to be king. But after God gave it to him, he owned it. And it, it couldn't be more evident than the next chapter when he goes against Goliath, right? It would make more sense for it to happen a different way, but... There's Goliath. And David says, 
No, no, I, I've been anointed king. This guy's coming against God, and God's given me these promises. In the flesh, I mean, it's not going to, he doesn't know how it's going to play out, but he knows this is how God has shown himself faithful to me, and he's given me training, and I've remained faithful to that, and he sent the lion, and he sent the bear, and I knew that with my sling I could handle those so that's what I've been given to, to use, so that's what I'm going to use. It might make more sense for me to try to use all this big armor, but instead I'm going to just give what I'm taking, and I'm going to throw that stone and let it fall where it may, because God promised this, and God promised me to be the leader, so I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm going to step into it, and it's going to happen. And it's interesting because that's not his glorious moment where he becomes king, right? He goes through so much more, but it's, it's like a, a symbol of the victories in his life where he shows up, God delivers him, God makes him victorious, but he still had to show up. And, and he says, and he, he let, kind of leaves it all out there and allows God the room to work. A, a cool... Uh, I guess expression of this is in Psalm 18. So let's go to Psalm 18. So think about it. In, after This is after one of David's big victories. And he's defeated the Amalekites. Or he's, he's come through a battle with his mighty men that they, they were way outnumbered. But God's spirit came and delivered them. And, and they did things that seemed impossible. And David says, I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, my place of safety. I called upon the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me, but death laid a trap in my path. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from a sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the mountains shook. They quaked because of his anger. It's a really long psalm, but it's really powerful. And, and to put yourself in his shoes and say, he didn't say, well, we were the best trained, we were the strongest army, and God helped us, but man, did we knock him flat. He recognized it for what it was. And if he had ran from the battle, they wouldn't have won. So the joy is this system that God set up where we get, to, we get to work with him to establish his kingdom and take responsibility for what he's given us, but we, we know it's not our doing, Right? But isn't it so cool that he set up a system that we get to be a part of it? Later on, as, as David is, grows in strength and, and, and the Israelites continue to grow in their reach, in 2 Samuel 7, after a big victory, in, in verse 18, David says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Lord God, because of your promise 
and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And he goes on for a while longer, but it's just this, this beautiful picture where you can get a feeling for his heart where he says, I don't know how you did it again or why you did it again, God, but you did. And I thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. And if we travel a little further down the road into 2 Samuel 11, we come across a part where he didn't make the best decision. So in verse 2 it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And the woman conceived, he took her in, and the woman conceived later on in verse 6. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The story goes on, and it's, it's the wife of Uriah, right? And if you, if you had followed David's story, you would have seen that Uriah was one of his one of his men that were there fighting with him the whole time. And if you've ever gone through some pretty tough times with people, you get pretty close. And this is kind of like one of his brothers. And if you know the story, you know that he basically took his wife, had him murdered, and tried to cover it up. So when Adam and Eve had sinned, God confronted them, right? This is a gracious thing that God does is he brings this confrontation into our lives. And that's why if you're a good friend, you're willing to confront others because you might be the hand of God that's bringing that. But Nathan comes and calls him out. God sends Nathan and says, what are you doing? You've sinned. The fruit of this sin is death. And David, wisely caught in his trap, says, you're right. And he repents. But there's still fruit from it, right? And I think that's something as well that there's times where we screw up where there's fruit from it that you just, it's there. And it's not that God can't bring healing and bring, um, you know, bring good out of it, but there's still fruit. And, and I think it's interesting where the child God says the child's going to die. And David is fasting and praying and fasting and praying and saying, God, have mercy, have mercy. The child dies and then he goes back to normal life. And everyone's like, what are you doing? The, the child just died. And he's like, he's returned and repented. So he's saying, well, it's at the hand of God because this is what God's done my whole life. I prayed to him because I thought he might have mercy. And the child died, and so now I have to just continue in walking uh, in obedience to God. And I, I thought that was, for me, that's a really interesting turning point because he's, he's restored his faith back in God and saying, well, I'm going to pursue him, and wherever he decides, whatever the fruit he decides, whatever the circumstances are like after this, then I accept that. But in that time, there's still disparity, there's still, there's still this sense of pain and anguish, right? Psalm 51, it's pretty well known. Um, 
I'm sorry, let's go to Psalm 32. What joy is those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of their sight? Yes, what joy for those who have the record of the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time. There's a few others that he writes in similar fashion. He says, I haven't hid my iniquities from you. Take not your spirit from me, God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Take not the joy of your salvation. And, and there's a thread in there that you can find where there, the shame is gone. In, in other parts of David's life, you see, when he is most obedient to God, there's, there is no shame, right or wrong, right? Someone who dances naked before a city after a victory, there's not a lot of shame there. It's like one of your friends that just doesn't have a filter, kind of, right? <laughs> oh, did they really just do that? But he's saying, no, I'm doing this before God, not for you. And, and so again, we see where David dealt well with all his victories. No shame. He's dancing naked before God, and he's saying, I didn't do it, God did. And when he did screw up, and he comes to repentance because God graciously brought that, that correction into his life, he says, I, I can't hide this. This is what I've done. There's joy in it. There's restoration in it. So I fully embrace it. There's a few spots where Paul writes in the New Testament about us boasting. Because part of the struggle for, you know, that, that I've walked through is, okay, I want to declare the good works of God. I don't want to be ashamed of the good things. I, I'm fine with walk, you know, airing out the bad things and giving the testimony of all the things that I've done that were stupid choices. But am I okay with saying, well, I put my loaves and fishes before God, and he multiplied it, and I really enjoy it. And, and in, in, uh, in Galatians 6.14, he says, ah, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, for neither circumcision counts nor uncircumcision counts, but a new creation. And similarly, in uh, 1 Corinthians 31, it's a reference to Jeremiah 9, that he expresses uh, a, a similar thing about boasting only in Christ and Him crucified. And in, in Jeremiah 9, it was like a cool precursor where he's saying, look, it's, it's not... God, there's coming a day when God's going to judge based on your heart, not upon the actions that you're doing religiously. And so it's, it's less of a thing of exclaiming the fruit, but more of a thing of exclaiming the fruit giver. And how he allows that to manifest is up to him, 
but it's, it's our joy to take part in, in, uh, in owning our responsibility. Cool also to look at how this played out in the life of Christ, right? Why didn't Jesus heal every person that he came across? Why didn't everyone, right? I think that God's heart, if his heart was that none should perish, he had to show amazing self-control, not to just bring final judgment and healing and restoration and a new kingdom when he was here. If his heart is longing for that, for him to walk on the earth, not bring that to everyone immediately, but instead walk through his responsibility of paying for our sins, allowing us to, part, to partake in it by raising up the disciples and giving the Great Commission and giving us his spirit. It, it's really amazing. Like Even when he's in the garden before he's going to the cross and, and he's, he's praying to Jesus, he's praying to God, he's saying, God, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it be, but not my will, yours be done. The humanity is shown, right, where he feels the weight of the situation, not because he's going uh, to get martyred, right? There's tons of people who have been martyred, but because he has to take on the weight of God's wrath for everyone's sin ever. And, and he's like, this is, not, this is not comfortable. This is not what I would choose to do. But in that, he, he was faithful to it and allowed us to take a part in it going forward. A lot of his parables, you know, there's similar things with the, the parable of the talents. Be faithful of few and you'll be made ruler over many. You still have to be faithful in the few. And, and that's going to look like ups and downs, but being in right relationship with God, that shame is gone. That deception is gone. And we can proclaim things for as they are. I thought about the rich young ruler, right? Where he had done all these things and he had all this stuff. And Jesus says, give it away. And he, he can't. Well, what about others that were given vast amounts of wealth for God's kingdom? Well, the point would be, right, that that was his thing. That was his thing where he was valuing the fruit and not the fruit giver. And so where he wasn't willing to give everything in and allow God to determine how, how the chips fall, then it was deception and it brought division in that relationship. Let's go to Romans 8. So to walk this out, right, with what Charlie was talking about, what Kurt was talking about in, in God molding us and as we have influence and how we display that in our areas. It has to be the power of the Spirit, right? And we need that right relationship where there isn't deception, where there isn't shame, where there isn't pride in the way. Even uh, uh, the, you know, you, there's times where, I know I've had to go through this, where God heals you of like a, a pride or a false humility of like, oh, that, that's great that that happened in your life. Oh, it wasn't me. I could never do that. Oh, didn't God give you the power to do it? You were faith. Sure, you might have been faithful in your little bit, but if you weren't faithful, it wouldn't have happened in that way at that time. 
God's going to get done whatever he wants to get done, right? The boy doesn't bring the fish. I don't know. What does God do? Manna 2.0 from heaven? He finds a way to, to feed the people, sure. But he had the privilege of in that moment, at that time, to see God's will accomplished. So Romans 8, 1, now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you. The power of sin that leads, freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied. If you don't know the chapter very well, I encourage you to read the whole thing, but I'm going to skip ahead to the end. And I'm going to start in uh, verse 26. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who are called to love God and call according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about these wonderful things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, wouldn't he also give up everything else? Going down to verse... 38, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor our fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. There is no power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I, I believe there's going to be some that, uh, that God wants to walk through this morning to remove a deception, to remove incorrect view of who God is or who he says we are, to remove pride, to remove shame. And what does it bring? It brings life. It gives us the opportunity to rightly own and take responsibility for for things that we've been faithful in and things that we have been unfaithful in. But in the whole process, there's no shame. It can be a joy. And in that heart of walking together is just the greatest thing that um, I feel for us this morning. So I want to pray and we're going to have some worship. 
And I'll be uh, up here. I'm sure there'll be others up here praying. But Lord, we just ask that uh, this morning you would remove deception, Lord. That you would bring uh, reconciliation where it's needed, God. Lord, I ask that you would uh, show us things that come between us and you in the, in the areas of life that are difficult, that we've made bad choices in, and in the areas of life that are enjoyable, that you've blessed us in, and, and we've experienced good things, God. But that all things in our lives would draw us to you and into a greater dependence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.